one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. It's Jeremy here and we have a special episode for you this week. It was recorded last weekend, live in front of a digital audience at the Cambridge Literary Festival. And in it, Emily and I looked back at some of the predictions we made at the start of the year about 2021 in world affairs. Some listeners may remember we discussed some of them on the podcast at the time. And we looked at how those predictions are doing uh, about a third of the way into the year. Um, We also took questions from the audience on an array of international topics. Next week, we'll be back with a regular episode of World Review, in which we're going to be talking to the anthropologist Mukulika Banerjee of the London School of Economics about the ongoing COVID-19 surge in India, as well as Prime Minister Narendra Modi's handling of the crisis and the latest in Indian politics. So please do send us your You Ask Us questions on any of those subjects to podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk and we'll try to answer them. We hope you enjoy this whistle-stop tour through the events of the year so far, and be assured that we're not copping out of rating our predictions at the end of the year. We will come back at the very end of 2021 for a comprehensive reckoning. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Cambridge Literary Festival event in association with the New Statesman magazine. I'm Jeremy Cliff, the international editor of The New Statesman, and I'm very pleased to be joined for this by our US editor in Washington, D.C., Emily Tumkin. Thank you for being with us, Emily. Thanks to the Cambridge Literary Festival for having both of us for this event. How, how is the American capital this fine morning where you are? We're thriving. Um, there's a bit of a drizzle, but it's, it's bright and sunny here in our hearts as we speak to all of you. That's good to hear. Right. So with, on that, on that, in that positive spirit, um, I'm very pleased to say that uh, this is the first live event associated with the New Statesman's uh, World Review podcast, which is our global affairs podcast. And for those who haven't heard the podcast yet, the, the, the focus is really to get beyond the everyday events of world news, the headlines, and really explain what, what matters underneath the surface. What are the long term trends? What does it all look like in context? And to that end, at the start of this year, at the start of 2021, Emily and I both put down some predictions about the year in world affairs and what would happen, partly to sort of stress test our own assumptions and analyses about the world, uh, and also to ensure that our readers could hold us to account at the end of uh, the year. And we promised that we would come back at the end of 2021 and see what we got right and what we got wrong. 
And when it was suggested that we did an event for the Cambridge Literary Festival associated with World Review, that felt like an obvious direction to go in. We're coming up to a third of the way through the year now. And so what better opportunity to check in on those predictions, see how they're faring, and also discuss a bit what's happening in World Affairs in the rest of the year. But of course, an important part of the World Review podcast is also questions. Emily, what are we doing about questions? Yes. So if you listen to the World Review, you know that we love listener questions. And as this is the podcast just live, um, we encourage you to send them in. If you are, you're watching this on Vimeo, so there is a chat function. If you leave your questions on, on anything, on I mean, anything relevant to this podcast, anything uh, from Russia to China to the EU to the climate crisis, send them our way. We will try to get through as many of them as we can. Yeah, and you can you can leave them in there at any point during the conversation. So whenever something comes to mind, just drop it in there and we'll try and get to as many of them as possible by the end. So with that, let the journalistic accountability begin. Uh, and we've picked out a handful of the predictions we made at the start of the year. We both made, uh, I think I made 10, Emily made seven. And we're gonna, we're gonna try and get through maybe four or five of them and just, just see how they're doing. So number one, Emily Tunkin, at the start of the year, you predicted that the US will not achieve herd immunity through vaccination until late autumn at the earliest. And I picked this partly because it also, it slightly tallies with one of mine. So I thought we could maybe try and do both of them, uh, which was I predicted more broadly that we wouldn't look back on the year in December and say this was the year that normality returned after the, the pandemic. So I, I guess we can kind of put them together. But first of all, how do you think your prediction is faring? Well, it's too early to say because the United States does not yet have herd immunity. And in fact, uh, just late last week, it came out that at the current rate of vaccination is not enough to achieve herd immunity, that we're getting to the point in the United States soon where um, supply is going to be greater than demand. Early on, there was a rush in many a state, particularly you know here in Washington, DC, um, it was very difficult to get the vaccine. We're moving past that point now, right? We're moving to the point where we just opened it up to all adults. Any adult in the, in the United States is now eligible for the vaccine. Essentially, what I'm what I'm saying is that we're getting to the point where the people who wanted to get vaccinated or who knew about vaccination or who who were reached through the various outreach programs, those people are vaccinated now. So the challenge is how do you reach people who either haven't heard or in harder to reach communities or who are vaccine skeptics? And I also want to note here that there was a lot written, including, you know, we also flagged this in our own reporting, that vaccine skepticism and hesitancy within communities of color who have been used, right, in some cases by the American scientific establishment, what we've actually seen is that the most vaccine hesitant communities are white religious conservatives. And it's it's frustrating, just as a person who lives in this country, that this basic thing that is going to keep not only these people, but other people healthy has become, like everything else here, a matter of, of partisan politics. I mean, was, was your pessimism at the start of the year more to do with the uptake by Americans, so with regards to vaccine hesitancy, or was it more the logistical feat? Because watching the US from afar, I feel like there are moments when one is just sort of staggered at how dysfunctional the American state can be in the American political system. I mean, we've seen evidence of that this year as well since we made our predictions. But there are other moments when you have to be incredibly admiring of the ability of America, despite its, its flaws, to get remarkable things done. And actually, I mean, it seems to me that, 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 that America's going quite fast on the vaccine front. In fact, um, I understand that they've overta- you've overtaken um, the UK, which was previously one of the, 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 the front runners. Biden's gradually made his own um, ambitions on this front more and more ambitious. Is there perhaps grounds for thinking that, that your, your prediction will prove too pessimistic? Uh, no, I mean, in some ways, I'm always too pessimistic and particularly was on this because, you know, Biden set this challenge for himself 
to get 100 million doses in 100 days. And it ended up being 200 million in his first 100 days. So uh, yes, is the short answer, right? And, and to me, writing this at the beginning of the year, my skepticism and my pessimism and cynicism was tied up with the logistics. Firstly, because we had a president whose attention just was not on this. I gave the Trump administration credit in that Operation Warp Speed poured funding into the production of the vaccine and allowed them to- Operation Warp Speed, just explain that for- uh... Operation Warp Speed being uh, basically like the Trump administration's name for the, the program that was going to develop the vaccine and get us out of the pandemic. And they did, they, the, that funding allowed these companies to produce vaccine at scale, which normally they wouldn't have done at this early at this early stage. But in terms of the, you know, they, they just weren't giving out vaccines fast enough by their own admission, it, it wasn't happening. And so, you know, to have a president who's been focused on that, I think has made a huge difference. But even so, you know, there's the federal government, there's the state government, there's local governments. And I, I do think that you've still seen that dysfunction, as you said, mm. play out in the vaccine rollout, particularly when demand was when demand was higher than than supply as opposed to this next phase that we're that we're getting into. For example, it was it was allocated to every state by population, including Washington, DC, which also had to vaccinate people who live in Maryland, Virginia, but work in DC, which is a tremendous number of people. So like 40% of DC's vaccines went to residents of Maryland, Virginia. This is one small example, but I, I do think it speaks to the ways in which just the structure of the United States made it, it structure and size and the internal politics made it difficult to, to get this up and running. You predicted that the world as a whole would not go back to normal by the end of, of 2021. Do you think that we're on pace to see that uh, dystopian vision become reality? Part of my prediction was, I think, was too optimistic and part of it was too pessimistic. And part of it was too pessimistic was I said that I thought, I mean, as I wrote that in on what was it, the, the third or fourth or something of January, the UK had obviously had started to emerge as a front runner. I think Israel, too. But it was clear that a lot of countries were going to have real problems. And I think we were starting to see the beginnings of, for example, the slow vaccine rollout, or the relatively slow vaccine rollout in the EU. And I, I thought, I just thought this is such an enormous logistical task. Government, Western governments often overestimate their own logistical abilities. And this speaks to what you were just saying about the US. And I tended to think that, that there was perhaps a bit too much optimism. And I, I disagreed there with our, our colleague, um, international correspondent, the New Statesman, Ido Falk, who was actually quite bullish on the chances of the rich world getting vaccinated quite fast. And his argument was that, you know, th th there is just such a vast incentive for governments to get this right and to spend money, you know, large sums of money, because as he put it, it's going to be the biggest multiplier of, uh, effect in history. You know, money spent on vaccines or speeding up vaccines can't really be excessive. Uh, so I think on that, I think Ido was right. And I think I was perhaps wrong. I mean, it's the, the success that we've seen in the UK and the way that that's driven down infection rates and the, the, the fact that the country's now been able to reopen and particularly the success in Israel, um, the way that, you know, as far as I can tell, Israeli society has massively reopened and, and they haven't seen the infection rate go up. So I think perhaps I was too gloomy about the, the rich world. Where I think, if anything, I was too optimistic was on the poor world. I said I thought the, the, the fact that vaccines were going to be rolled out so slowly the fact that you're going to have economic aftershocks would also contribute to the global south, for example, not returning to any sort of normality by the end of the year. And I think, if anything, that understated it. I mean, I'll give you two examples, Brazil and India. Now, these are both countries that were said around the start of the year or late last year, there, were, there was speculation that they'd even reached herd immunity. 
So Manaus, a city in the Brazilian Amazon, for example, was held up as a, as a city that had had a really bad first wave back last spring. But at that point, I think this was sort of late last year, infections were still very low. And, you know, there were, there were serious analyses that said perhaps Manaus is the first place on world, in the world that's achieved herd immunity. And we had a similar narrative in India around the start of this year. A lot of people had worried that India was going to have a very bad experience with COVID, but there, there we were, the numbers were quite low, the country had reopened. And in both cases, those optimistic um, assessments turned out to be wrong. I mean, Manaus turned out to be the, the hub of a new and even far worse a wave of the pandemic in Brazil. Not only that, but it was also, it seems to have been the origin of the P1 Brazilian variant, which is a reminder of what happens when you have these concentrations of infections, particularly in poor countries where it's in poorer countries where it's more difficult for people to distance. And the same story in India, you know, absolutely horrific numbers out of India. Um, the, the latest, I think yesterday, as we record this, uh, 340,000 uh, new infections in India yesterday. That was up on 332 the day before, 314 the day before. Uh, and each, each day now, India is setting a new record for the number of new infections in one country in one day. And that's before we get on to the, 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 the long-term economic effects. And then on top of that, you know, nothing in the last few months has given me a great, great optimism that the world's poor will be vaccinated anytime soon. I mean, you know, there are parts of the world where I think we're talking more 23 or 24 than even 2022 as to when they'll get their jabs. Sub-Saharan Africa has had um, 6 million vaccinations out of a population of 1.1 billion. Um, and so I think as much as I think my... I underestimated how much the rich world might return to a sort of normal. And a lot of people in this audience will be in the UK, which is actually further down the road back to normal than a lot of countries, including Germany, where I currently am. Uh, but I think I underestimated how bad it was going to be for the, for the global south. But I think we should note that these two things, they're, they're connected, right? Like part well, of the reason, right, part of the reason it's as good as it is in the rich world is that that's where the resources are, right? Okay. You know, why, why, has the, why does the United States have 200 million doses? And India can't get, well, it's because of patents and it's because of technically not export bans, but export bans, right? Like we're doing so well. And as a result of that, other countries are not doing as well. And I think I think one thing we talked about throughout the course of this pandemic, and if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you will know this, we had sort of hoped that this would, that this would inspire world leaders to start thinking more multilaterally. Because as we saw from the outbreak of COVID, we're, I don't mean like we're all in this together in a kind of, you know, children's TV show way. I mean, quite literally, that until this is, we're, you can't eradicate this if it's only gone in the US and the UK and Israel. That's just not how it's going to go. I don't really think that that was internalized. And it, and it, come, it also affects, it has to do with this term that I use, normality. You know, even if the ritual does get back to a recognizable everyday life, what sort of normality is it if it comes at the cost of this huge moral burden of having of having denied that the same normality to the rest of the world? And then even if you were taking looking at this from an incredibly self selfish, self-interested point of view, as as a resident of a rich country like like you or me, you're still going to have knock-on effects from from mm -hmm. a raging virus in the rest of the world. You know, we've, as I mentioned, new variants that may or may not be resistant to some of the vaccines. Travel will still be difficult. You're still going to have onerous quarantine requirements. You might even still have to have sort of occasional lockdowns to, to close down um, um, hotspots that emerge even, even in, within vaccinated populations. So I think we can, we, we were both pessimistic and I think there's probably grounds to, to, to say that we were both right to be pessimistic. Okay, let's, let's have our second prediction. Yes, our Moving next on. prediction. Jeremy Cliff, at the start of this year, you predicted, quote, all regular US troops gone from Afghanistan by the latter part of the year, end quote. 
Well, when you're when you're right, no. you're right. So let's. This, let's... A, this was this was actually so far at least it seems to have been a direct hit. Four months is a long time in global affairs, and and when I was writing this, because this was still quite an open question. Biden hadn't been inaugurated yet. This was, was still the dying days of the Trump um, administration. But it was obviously a big question that Biden was going to have to deal with soon. You know, Trump had overseen, presided over peace talks with the Taliban that had begun in Qatar in in September. And under the terms of those talks, the US was meant to be out by the start of May this year. And so it was clear that Biden was going to have to make a choice quite soon after he became president. He didn't have any particularly good options. On the one hand, pull out and risk um, chaos returning to Afghanistan. On the, on the other hand, stay in with a very small presence. I think there are about two and a half thousand US troops at the time that I made this prediction, which, which, which ran the risk that they were too few to be effective, but, too, but still 2,500 American troops in harm's way. Or do you escalate again and put more troops in, which seemed not really to be an option on the table politically. Uh, and I just thought that faced with three bad options, Biden would probably go for the one that would play best domestically. And, you know, getting out of Afghanistan is popular with the Trumpite right. You know this better than I do. Um, it's popular with the left. It plays to this sense that of, of Biden trying to kind of disentangle the U.S. from some parts of the world so that it can focus on, one, its domestic priorities and two, uh, the, com- the, the contest with China. Uh, and so I just thought that that added up to, to a decision where he'd say, yes, we'd, we'd leave. And lo and behold, last week he announced that the U.S. would be out of Afghanistan by the, sim- the very... Uh, laden with symbolism date of the 11th of September, which will, of course, be the 20th anniversary of the September 11 attacks that sort of catalyzed the decision to go to go into Afghanistan. So that's that's my re- reaction to it. I, I suppose it was it did turn out to be accurate. But I really be keen to hear what you how you see this all from from, from Washington. Did your expectations change soon after Biden became president? And I guess, secondly, where do you think this goes next? What do the next months look like? Well, first of all, I'll believe that the troops are gone when they're actually gone. I just think that, you know, I I was struck by the logic that he outlined in his announcement that we were, the U.S. troops were leaving Afghanistan, which was basically that we've, I mean, we've been there for 20, I was 11 when U.S. troops invaded Afghanistan. I'm not anywhere near 11 anymore. Um, There are people fighting there who were not born yet when we went. I'll give him credit for saying there's never going to be a right time to leave. There are people in Afghanistan who are going to be hurt or die as a result of the United States withdrawing. But I think what Biden was basically saying was that we can't be here forever. I mean, that and and the argument that, oh, it's just conditions aren't right right now. Well, when are when are conditions? I mean, as he said, we've given this argument time. We've given the argument that diplomacy without military support won't work. We've given it a decade. You know, I, I will say that the thing that I was less heartened by was this insistence by Biden that we were successful in Afghanistan. Yes, uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, who was sort of the, the who was the mastermind of the 9/11 attacks, um, was killed ten years ago in Pakistan. But if we were there to you know to root out the Taliban, well, the the deal to leave Afghanistan was made with the Taliban, right? We're leaving on starting on May first because that was the day by which U.S. troops were meant to be gone. I guess to me, the concerning thing is that this this mentality of and we're going to continue to fight terrorism all over the world and we were successful here and now we're going to leave to be successful elsewhere. I don't know that we as a country have fully grappled with the level of of not success that was had here. Right. And the, and the, the lives lost, not just American lives, but the Afghan civilian lives that were lost as a result of this. And why did we fail? And what does it mean to fail? And what what can we take from this so that we don't not just don't make the same mistake, but don't make a new version of the same mistake. Yeah. And I guess that's what I don't see. Presumably it's difficult politically for, for, for Biden to say this was not a, 
a successful operation, particularly judged um, in terms of the resources in, in sort of I mean, the, politically, the, right. Right. Politically, he's not going to come out and say, actually, we failed. This was a 20 year debacle. No. Um, sorry about all the money and your children's lives. Right. He's not going to going to come out and say that. But I guess what I'm saying is that I, I don't know that we as a country are, are reckoning with with what happened. Uh, and I don't know that we're leaving with, with enough humility, I guess, is what I'm yeah. saying. I think it, it's a shame, you know, even if you, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a shame if you, if you simply think that whatever you want to call liberal interventionism is a bad idea generally, because, because, because it would make sense to acknowledge the failures in this case. And personally, I, I would like us more, and I, by us, I mean those in the UK and in uh, Europe as well, uh, to differentiate more between interventions that were, that were badly thought out and on the wrong basis, like Iraq and Afghanistan, and interventions that, that did have positive, did have over, you know, on balance positive effects, for example, in Rwanda or Kosovo in, in the 1990s. And I think it would help that, that differentiation if you'd say when interventions didn't work out, because I think it would give you more credibility to make the case for say, right. this didn't work, but this will, and this is why this will be different from that, you know? I also think that this is a challenge for progressives. Um, and if you are listening to this or watching this, there is a good chance that you count yourself as one. You know, I, I think our refrain here in the United States is end endless war. That's one of the, the calls of progressive foreign policy at the moment. And I guess I just think that that in and of itself is not enough, right? Like end endless war, okay, and then what? How are we end endless war? And do you still concern yourself with human rights? And if so, how do you go about uh, defending them and calling for them and improving your democracy at home while trying to support oppressed peoples abroad. You know, does end endless war mean you take your toys, you go home and you just worry about your own? Because I don't, I, I think we haven't seen that work well either. Um, yeah. And so I guess I, what I, one thing that I hope will come from this is a conversation on and within the left about what a robust progressive foreign policy could look like, right? Like, okay, we've, end, if we've ended this endless war, now what? So, prediction three. Emily, you wrote in your predictions at the start of the year, tensions between India and China will escalate. And I think that was, if I remember correctly, that was a reference to the, partly to the, the, the skirmishes that took place in the Himalayas last summer, very concerning between two nuclear-armed semi-superpowers. How do you think that, that prediction is looking now? If one, if one uh, looks at it strictly in terms of the military, then obviously I, I was wrong and that we haven't seen a return of that. But I think overall relations between India and China are not, are, are not good. Um, and I actually think that in addition to many things that the United States has done to try to bring India, uh, to make India a closer partner, despite many decades of kind of skepticism and hesitancy and the fact that the US, you know, the US likes all of its partners to sit at the same lunch table. And India for decades has, has gone by non-alignment or just, or, or you know, wants to continue its relationships with Russia and, and set its own foreign policy and not be a junior partner. You know, the US has worked to bridge that and to bring the United States and India closer together. As much as anything the United States has done, China's behavior has made that happen um, and has gotten India to more on board with the Quad, this, this partnership between India, the United States, Australia, and Japan, um, more comfortable with the concept of the Indo-Pacific, which at first it was really not, particularly because of Russia's hesitancy with this concept? I think we should explain is, is, is this idea of a sort of a, alliance of powers in that region to counterbalance China. That's a, a fair summary, right? Right, or a, or a partnership, since India and the United States are not technically allies. But I, I will say that, um, and I wrote a piece on this last week, that 
to have a healthy relationship in foreign policy as in life, it can't really just be about one thing, right? Like if you both like cheese and have nothing else in common, that relationship is probably not going to, to last. Similarly, if all you have is that you both are working against China, it's a lot of pressure on this one part of the relationship. I like this, I like this cheese as skepticism about China comparison. Yes, so. thank you. Um, <laughs> and, and, and the other thing that I noted in that piece and uh, who will be writing on this week for the new states, but so stay tuned. I think that there's less, not I think, many people have said that there's less strategic empathy between India, in India for the United States than there was for the Soviet Union, than there was for Russia, right? That they'll, they're less willing to overlook other grievances. You saw this when, um, I mean, you see this all the time, but India is much quicker to take umbrage, or at least the policy making class is quicker to take umbrage. Not, not necessarily people in government, right? But the media and st uh, strategists. And I just want to say that if the United States is not going to waive the patent for the vaccine because it's the right thing to do, they should absolutely do it because this is a major, major, this could be a major challenge to, to the idea yeah. that the United States is going to work with India to counter China. First of all, because if India is wiped out with, not wiped out with, but 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 physically hurting and economically hurting and, and because of COVID, it's going to be a less helpful partner in countering China. But secondly, you know, if, if you're trying to get more of that strategic empathy, all these people dying and you having the thing, right, the intellectual property that could help stop it and not giving it, that will be remembered. Yeah, I think that's going to become a, the, the calls will grow only grow over the next weeks right. for 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 a, a, a patent waiver. I mean, this this touches a little bit on on a, on a related prediction that I made at the start of the year about relations between China and major democracies. And I said that I thought that they would deteriorate, but that efforts to coordinate those other democracies, those other China skeptic democracies, those other cheese lovers to uh, take take on your your, your comparison um, that those 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 efforts may not achieve very much nonetheless and I think that actually the year has has suggested that there was some truth to that because there's, there's evidence of a lot of lot of countries including treaty allies of the US and non-treaty allies like India still to one extent or another hedging their bets on China they may they may essentially tend to the American view which is that China uh, needs to be contained to some degree might even potentially be a threat. But there, you know, and there are various examples of this. I mean, look at, I think it was last, last week, for example, Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel had a three-way meeting with um, Xi Jinping to coordinate their positions on, admittedly, a policy climate where the world absolutely does need China, whether we want to, however closely we want to work with China or not, but ahead of Joe Biden's summit that he convened on that. And there was a slight sense of them, sort of, of, of the three, slightly undercutting Biden's initiative there. Mm -hmm. And I think that has to be seen in the context of the EU's decision to sign, in, in principle, a, an uh, investment agreement with China right in the dying days mm -hmm. of 2020, just before we first spoke about these predictions, just before the Biden administration came in and very much against its wishes. Uh, you know, so there you have two countries that rely on the American security umbrella to mm -hmm. a greater or lesser degree, are, are close political and diplomatic partners with the US, and nonetheless, were still to some extent hedging their bets. You even see, even see it with the UK, which I think is even closer to the U US on, these, these, on the, the big picture and, and how to regard China. But it surprised some people when recently the, the new British integrated review came out, which is supposed to be this big vision of Britain in the world, global Britain after Brexit. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, had, including myself, had expected that that would go very hard on the idea that the UK that you couldn't get a, a cigarette paper between the UK and the US on China. That, 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 that one of the UK's 
sort of USPs in the world will be as a sort of a European branch of American thinking on with regards to China. Mm-hmm. And actually, it was a surprisingly hedged document. And it talked about China as being, being a secure geopolitical risk, but it also talked about deepening uh, economic relations with China. And these days, it's very hard to do that without it having some sort of geopolitical knock-on effect. And so mm-hmm. there too, you had, you had an important ally, ally hedging. And of course, it seems to be the biggest hedger of all among this supposedly China skeptic alliance, whatever we want to call it, is India itself. Mm-hmm. You know, the country that is, you know, in terms of, of, of weight in Asia, probably the most important to possibly even more than Japan uh, to, the, to the US agenda on China. But where I think, you know, it's very much kind of played as it comes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that you'll, you'll know this better than, than I as, a, as, a, as, a, as an India watcher, but there's this phrase by Foreign Minister Jai Shankar, you know, India's on its own side. It's not mm-hmm. on anyone else's side. And obviously I mean, it's been I, decades in Indian foreign policy, but I mean, is, is India at all reliable to, to, to these sorts of efforts? On the one hand, yes. On the other hand, the reality is that um, India is right there, right? Like Amer- the United States is many, many miles away from China and India needs to sort of go along to get along uh, with China. I mean, the other thing is that it needs to continue economic ties with China. People use Chinese-made cell phones, and and you know that that it's still in some ways, you know, it's not what we would call a rich country. And so, for the United States to say, well, you have to end your economic ties with China to India, I think is is a hard a hard sell. I think it should not personally. It, while it is predictable that it is as hard a sell it, as it is with the EU, I think that to me that's where the United States should be focusing its efforts. Right, not telling India, which can't necessarily afford to cut ties with China economically, but the EU, yeah. which, and, you know, we talked about this on the podcast just two days ago, the United States tends to see economics and national securities being entwined, whereas Europeans, and we'll be hypocritical about it, right, but but in their minds, the two are, in our minds, the two are linked. I've thought whereas, about that observation a lot since, since you made it on, on that podcast. It's, it's such a good way of putting it because it, it really captures a difference in how the US and the EU think about these things. Thanks. Um, I think especially Germany and France, right? We'll say, well, like, why can't we, you know, why, why can't we trade with, it's like, well, you, you just said that they're the national security threat. So I think that that will continue to be a point of tension between our, yeah. our great nations. Okay. You had another prediction, speaking of Europe, which was 2021 will in many ways be a more difficult year for the EU than 2020. Okay. So I should give some context to this prediction. I was, I was quite wary about making it because I tend to think that particularly in the, the UK and to some extent the US press, the EU obvi- often gets written off or, or, ha- or gets its obituaries written too soon. And we saw that in the Eurozone crisis. We saw that in the, in the, the, the migrant crisis. We saw that with the rise of nationalist populism in Europe. And it's not to say that these weren't big, big problems and issues in Europe, but the EU did sort of muddle through and muddle on. And so when there was another wave of this early last year with the pandemic, my initial reaction was, I think this is, you know, this is, this is, this is people are again underestimating the durability of the EU. And I wrote that at the time in my New Statesman column, and that turned out to be right. You know, a few months later, the EU um, uh, agreed a big, much bigger than expected, a support package for countries in economic trouble, 750 billion euros, backed by common debt, which is a big step forward. Uh, you know, something a lot of people said never would happen. And I think that was proof that you proof that, that that argument had been right, that you shouldn't uh, uh, sort of write the EU off. However, start of this year, I thought things could genuinely get very grim for the EU this year. Uh, you know, at the point of writing the prediction, it was clear that the EU was going to, was falling behind on the vaccine front. You also have the fact that the, the big debates about 
exact about the implementation of that 750 billion euros um, and eventually how it'll be paid for were, were yet to come up and I thought they were going to be divisive. And then you had the fact that there's, you know, the economic shockwaves would nonetheless cause great suffering in, in European countries and, and potentially you know, fuel the rise of anti-system and anti-EU parties. So that I thought that combination of factors sort of made me think that even as someone who's tended to try to be a bit more nuanced about the EU and its strengths and weaknesses, I thought, I thought that made for a difficult year coming up. And I'd say that predictions, I think some of that has proven correct and some of it, I think, perhaps was a bit too pessimistic. The EU did struggle with vaccines in January and February, and it, you know, it, it, got, it got pretty rough for the, for the European Commission. Many blamed it for the, the slow rollout, including, including myself. I mean, it's, it turns out that the EU had been much too naive about the way it had negotiated its vaccine um, deals and thought that it had room to, to bargain on price and, and had time to consult with member states when really it should have been far more, uh, you know, the commission really should have said to the member states, you know, if you want us to negotiate this for you as a block, we need total carte blanche to negotiate as fast and as, as powerfully as we can. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't the case. Um, but there have been some sort of, gl- some sort of, some glints of, of positivity more recently. The, the vaccine rates have been picking up in, in, in most European countries, finally. Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, said just this week that she expected that the EU would hit its target of 70% of adults vaccinated in July, which is two months ahead of its own schedule. It's not as fast as the UK and the US, but but not drastically behind either. There have also been, some would say, positive uh, political developments in various countries. You have, we had a Dutch election in March that uh, saw the pro-European D66 party do quite well, which I think speaks to the, which, which might end up meaning that the the most fiscally hawkish of the, 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 the Eurozone countries ends up being more open to important discussions about reform. Broadly speaking, I think it's fair to say that the far right hasn't yet surged as a result mm-hmm. of this. And where, and where the far right is a significant player, for example, in France, you know, there's a lot of questions as to whether Marine Le Pen could win the French presidential election next year. That even now, they're not saying we want to leave the EU, the idea of you know, replicating Brexit with a, a Frexit or an exit or an Italexit or whatever you're calling it. It's not that... It's nuts it. Uh, yeah. it. Um, uh, we need to work on that. But uh, right. yeah, uh, th- th- that idea seems to have gone out of the window. You, know, you have in Italy a, a new government led by Mario Draghi, the former president of the European Central Bank, who, whatever you think about him as a, a political leader, to the extent that he even is one, is a, is a big player in Europe. You know, for, you know, the, 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 the central bank governor who many say kind of saved the euro during the eurozone crisis. And he's someone who can really, for once, as Italian prime minister, look the French president or the German chancellor in the eye. So that's good news. And then I think Germany, a bit like the Netherlands, is starting to, is, is arguably shifting a bit towards a reformist position on the future of the EU. It looks like the Greens will probably be in the next government and might even lead the next government, as, as I've written recently. Uh, and I think that, from a kind of from a point of view that says the EU needs needs to sort out needs to needs to get a, go ahead and, and integrate in certain areas to act mm-hmm. as one effectively. I think that's that's also good news. So a few rays of sunshine. Uh, it's still, I think, going to be a difficult year, but potentially not as grim a one as I'd I'd, I'd thought early, earlier on. But we will we will see. So, I mean, just just briefly from uh, from from the US, is that is that is that is that the perspective, or is the EU still seen as a, a real problem case? I don't think the, the the EU is necessarily seen as a problem case in the United States. I think for one thing, we're so domestically focused this year. Yeah. But I do think that you know Biden's first first foreign trip was announced, and it will be in the UK for the G seven, and then to Brussels for NATO. And I think that that's that's significant, both in terms of his relationship with the UK, but also in terms of his relationship with like he didn't have to go to Brussels. For his first for his first trip, and he did. I think that 
you know, that China and Russia will continue to be points of friction between these two, these two units. But uh, I think that I think that this team, this administration is really committed to working with to working with Europe. Yeah. So um, we're getting some really good questions coming in. Keep them coming uh, on anything we've discussed or other topics you want to hear from us on. But before we go to the questions, we have a quick fire round to keep us on our toes. So are you ready, Emily? I'm ready. Um, what bad piece of news this year do you think is most significant? I don't know if it's if it's most significant, but a significant piece of news that we've not yet spoken of is um, what's happened to Alexei Navalny in Russia. Um, both his attempted, the attempted poisoning, the return to Russia, and now, you know, he's, well, the attempted poisoning was obviously not in 2021, but the return to Russia. And, fill, us in, fill us in on who he is for those who aren't. Uh, Alexei Navalny is an opposition leader in Russia, or a prominent opposition figure, and he's, you know, he's gone through different phases, but I think the constant one can point to is that he's he's an anti-corruption activist and for years was kind of left alone or not physically hurt by the Russian state. And then that changed. Uh, he was poisoned. His underwear was was poisoned with Novichok, which is obviously highly, highly dangerous. Uh, he went to Germany for metal, medical treatment and came back to Russia, knowing full well what might happen to him. Indeed, that is what happened to him. He's now in prison. He's not getting proper medical care. He's been on a hunger strike. He, he may well die. And it, you don't poison someone's underwear because you're hoping that they'll live, right? So, and I guess the striking thing to me about this, well, two things. Firstly, he's in a very difficult position because too much Western support makes him look like a Western stooge, which is not necessarily helpful for him or for his cause. cause. But on the other hand, there's not, you know, I, I agree with with those who say that the U.S. and its allies haven't called, you know, sufficiently for for help. But it, the reality is that what we have seen is that there is not much that the U.S. can do to change Russian behavior. Right? The U.S. has sanctioned Russia on everything from Ukraine to it's it's put sanctions on certain oligarchs who are ostensibly close to the Kremlin or thought to be close to the Kremlin. Uh, it's put san- it put sanctions on over the poisoning of the Skripals in Salisbury. It's expelled diplomats. It's you know it. it and, and and it's not like it's not working. And so to me, there's the fate of this one man, which is important. But there's also the fact that I think what we've seen play out, certainly in 2020 and now in 2021, is that the United States does not know how to get Russia to change its behavior. Yeah. What would you say is a piece of bad news? A significant piece of bad news. We could debate how fundamental it is, but I think important because of what it means for the country in question, but also broader trends internationally, is the coup in Myanmar. That's certainly something we didn't see coming at the start of the year, but a uh, military junta took power in, in, in the country in uh, February. And I think it's significant, first of all, because there have been horrific clashes between the, um, uh, the, 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 the junta and protesters, pro-democracy uh, protesters in Myanmar. It doesn't look like the the junta will be overthrown or that democracy will be restored anytime soon. But I think for me, it sort of stands as a, as a symbol of the struggles of democracy in the last few years. I mean, Myanmar was held up around the start of the last decade as a, a shining example of a country that had long had military rule and was and was trying to um, construct a democracy. It was a sort of an optimistic story. And Aung San Suu Kyi was, of course, a, a, a kind of an icon of that around that time. And the slide of Myanmar, first of all, <coughs> uh, with the violence against the Rohingyas, for example, um, but also the struggles to, to construct a lasting democracy, culminating in this uh, military coup, I think is a sad story of, of a reversal of what, something that was very positive and very hopeful. And, you know, you look internationally, um, democracy internationally is on the decline. Um, indexes of democracy, various, various organisations put them out. 
um, I think almost unanimously show that, that the number of countries you know, graded by the quality of their democracy, overall democracy is declining. You know, you could, you, could, you could look at examples like whether it's um, shifts in Russia recently, whether it's Hungary in the European Union, whether it's even actually flaws in the democracies of some very developed uh, countries, including like the US, for example. Including, um, say, mine. Yeah, I mean, you're also looking at Brazil, uh, some positive stories in Africa that have, that have gone backwards the wrong way. And I think it just sort of, Myanmar therefore speaks for that kind of, that, that, negative, that negative trend um, in a very sad way. Okay, what is, do you think, A, or the most significant um, piece of good news so far this year? Well, this is great news that we just got recently, which is that we're maybe, hopefully, probably getting a malaria vaccine, um, which will be huge for, I mean, for the world, but specifically for Africa. Not to sound too, like, hippy-dippy about this, but I, I, I think that the overall good news story of the past year is science, right? Science working and, and, and people developing these vaccines, the COVID vaccine so rapidly, this malaria vaccine, just the fact that, that humans are capable of doing this uh, and using it to help each other and ourselves, I think is incredible. Um, I'm excited to see what the deployment of this vaccine will mean. And trust the science is kind of like a mocked cliche here in the United States, but I believe it. What is your piece of good news? I will say, uh, I think uh, the malaria vaccine, of course, and uh, just the fact that the, the COVID-19 vaccines do seem to work in the countries where they've been rolled out far enough, mm -hmm. that, that is a positive that was less clear at the start of the year. But otherwise, it has to be the US returning to the Paris Agreement under, under Joe Biden. It's not enough in and of itself. And you and I have talked recently about the you know, potentially Joe Biden's commitments on the climate not going far enough, certainly proportionally to America's wealth. But that was unequivocally a good thing. And I think it, it, it did set the world up for a genuinely open um, COP26 in Glasgow in November, which is going to be crucial. It's going to be when the Paris Agreement is going to be assessed, where countries will make new commitments. And I think without the US on board, that would have been extremely difficult. Uh, so I think that was a really good piece of news. So very quickly, before we come to questions, what will you be paying a particular attention to in global affairs for the rest of the year? What's particularly worth watching, do you think? Um, I think uh, we've spoken a lot about it already, but I think this disparity between the rich world and the poor world and vaccine development and whether or rollout uh, and whether or not the United States decides to help others as we have helped ourselves. It's, it's the kind of thing where you can understand you can understand why they're doing it, right? Why they want to make sure that every American is vaccinated first. It's good politically, domestically. I, I, I just think it's truly short-sighted. Yeah. What story will you be watching? Just various polit political stories very quickly. Um, I think the Russian Duma elections in September are going to be interesting, particularly in the context of what you said about Navalny. It's pretty clear there'll be, you know, it will be an unfair election, but it will still tell us a lot about the way that you know, the direction that Putin's Russia is going in. I'll be paying attention to Brazilian politics because of the slide into authoritarianism under Jair Bolsonaro. Um, obviously, they've had a horrific COVID-19 pandemic and they've got an election coming up next year. But I think we'll find out a lot about what, how that race is going to shape up. Luis Inácio Lula is back on the scene, uh, the, uh, the country's former president, uh, who some think could be a credible uh, rival. And I'll be paying attention also to the, uh, the German election um, in September, um, obviously a big one with Angela Merkel stepping down after 16 years. It's going to be genuinely open and competitive and will tell us a lot about the future of Europe. So I think that's that's something I'll be, of course, paying very close attention to. So that leaves us about 15 minutes to go through some questions. We have some really, really good ones. With no further ado, let's start with uh, Millie asks, any thoughts on the clashes this week in East Jerusalem? Um, Emily, I know you were watching that. Uh, what, what yeah, are your I mean, I think it's horrible, right? You have far white, far right essentially Jewish supremacists going through Jerusalem. You, the videos that, that made their way around on social media, you could hear Arab children 
crying, there were people hospitalized. And I think it's important to note, as others already have, that this is behavior that's emboldened by the government, right? By these far right and right wing parties. I don't have anything particularly profound to say about it other than I think that, um, and I said this on the podcast on on Friday, but that the politics of the street are emboldened by the, the politics of the state. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Just briefly, what, what do you think is the, um, the relationship with Israeli politics at the moment? Because on the podcast, we talked about the recent election and um, you know, the rise of, of far-right forces also in um, Israeli politics. Do you, I mean, do I think you, that, yeah, relate? I think there's, of course, there's a, a connection, right? If, you're, if you have a, a, a political culture that is accepting of far-right parties and, and a, you know, a status quo that just does not place value on, on Palestinian lives, then that creates a that also creates a culture of permissiveness towards violence against Palestinians. Absolutely. Okay. Michael asks. This is a, this is a, a good one too. Is geopolitics fragmenting or coalescing into big power groups again? And which, if either, would be better or worse? Um, I'd like to have a, a swing at that one. But do you, you want to start? Off? Okay, I'll take that. You take so that. I I think uh, that it is. This sounds like a bit of a cop up, but I think it is a bit. It is. It is a bit of a bit of both. You are seeing big blocks emerge, and you know you're seeing that, for example, with the rise of the, the Quad, which Emily already mentioned as as an important format. This was this was a group of the U.S., Japan, Australia, and India that emerged actually in a quite ad hoc way to to deal with the aftermath of the Indian Ocean tsunami as a sort of relief forum or a forum to organize relief, and it's 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 turned into a a significant coordinating organization for policy in the in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, for the reasons that we discussed earlier in this uh, this event, uh, the 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 extent to which you can expect different different sorts of countries with different sorts of politics to cooperate on a particular issue, namely containing China in that region, is is very much up for debate. But it is a thing. Um, similarly, I think the EU, for all of its of its flaws, and I think the fact that it's muddling through. In the current crisis, as, as I've said, doesn't still doesn't mean that it's 
performing at the best of its potential. But it is it is an important reference point. And I think, you know, seen as I understand it from Washington, the EU is expected to do more in its own geopolitical neighborhood. I mean, I think we could perhaps leave the issue of Brexit out of it for now. But, um, you know, the, the, the thinking globally is, well, if there's if there's chaos in Ukraine or Belarus or uh, Syria or even in the Mediterranean, that's really the EU's job to sort to, 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 to sort out. I mean, in Latin, Latin America, there isn't currently a kind of a block type organization, but there is a strong sense that there should be one. And this is a, it is a live topic of political debate in places like Brazil or Argentina or Peru um, as to whether or not Latin America should operate more together. So I think you are seeing big blocks matter. But at the same time, I think for the reasons that we discussed when we were talking about India, China and, and, and so forth, I think these are what you're more likely to see is blocks emerging around certain issues blocks where countries are aligned. They might be, some might be democratic, some might be authoritarian. It might be a kind of a hard power subject or a kind of a geopolitical subject. It might be a values-based subject. You know, the, the British government wants to expand the G7 at, uh, into a D10, um, also including um, India, South Korea, and Australia. That's, that's, that's meant to be a group of countries that are similarly aligned on democracy. Um, it might be a geographical block like, like the European Union. And so I think you will see more of a block-based system for the world. And I think that does, by the way, pose interesting questions for the UK as it sort of tries to find it, find its place in this, in this, in this new world order. But I don't think you see, I, I don't expect to see that sort of crystallise into, 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 into something like the Cold War. I mean, that's often, that term is still often used with regards to the US and China, the new Cold War, the Cold War between the US and China. And I think, I think that's the wrong frame of reference. Mm -hmm. I don't think you're going to see those fixed, those fixed monolithic blocks in, in, in a way that you did in the second half of the 20th century, but you will see, you'll see them, you know, come together around certain issues, disagree on other issues, and then, you know, reformulate on, on, on other topics separately from that. So that's, that's how I see things developing. Emily, what about you? No, I agree. I think that, I just think that it's, I mean, in some ways the Cold War thinking is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because if you say that we're in a Cold War, it kind of reinforces this, the, these, um, these binary terms, Mm. And then that shapes geopolitics. But I, I really do think that it's more that it's more complicated than that. I mean, the European Union um, national security versus economics debate that we were discussing earlier is a great example of this. It's the same set of countries pursuing these different policies with China, like at mm. the same at the same time. And I, I, I tend to think, you know, people in Washington love to talk about great power politics. And I just think that that does not assign enough agency to, you know, there's what, 196 countries to the other 194 other than the US and China. And it's interesting to see there's a lot of references at the moment, particularly in the kind of um, US foreign policy press, about the idea of a, co of a concert of powers. So mm -hmm. something similar to what happened in Europe after the Napoleonic Wars, where you sort of, you have a sort of steady alliance system. And I think that obviously appeals to a lot in Washington. But I do wonder if that's the right historical parallel. I mean, I mean right, exactly. <laughs> what comes next? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting, and I, I, I will follow the debate with interest, but I'm personally not, not totally convinced by that. But a um, very interesting question. Another question related to the US, what do you, or to the, the administration, what do you think the wider implications are of Biden acknowledging the Armenian genocide? That's a question from Stella. It's a great question. I, you know, I could be wrong on this, but I think, first of all, my own opinion, and this is only for myself, not the New Statesman, um, is that this should have been done a long time ago, and it wasn't because they because of relations with Turkey. So those who say, "Well, now it's only because relations with Turkey are bad," it's kind of like, okay, but but we didn't call it a genocide before because relations were good or because we were trying to salvage them. So neither one of these is really a good reason to declare something or not declare something, in my opinion. 
other mm-hmm. thing is that, again, relations with Turkey are bad. So will this make them worse? I mean, maybe, but they're not like they're, they're pretty bad now. Yes, Turkey is a NATO ally. Yes, the United States does need to continue to work with Turkey in some capacity. Is that, is that reason enough to not call things by their own names, right? I, I personally yeah. don't think so. And I, I really don't think that we're going to, I mean, it would, I, I, at this moment, cannot imagine the kind of spiraling out of control that people are, are threatening over this. Yeah, I think that actually speaks a little bit to the previous point we were discussing in that what allegiance do the US and um, Western European or Central or Eastern European NATO powers owe to Turkey? On the one hand, it belongs to NATO as a bloc, as a military mm-hmm. bloc, that is partly a legacy of the Cold War and is partly a, a, a relevant player in, in, in today's world. You know, whether, whether, you need to, whether you need to bundle in with that uh, kind of total political uh, alignment uh, or, or, or diplomatic alignment even on, on, on subjects outside of NATO's remit, clearly not. And also, I mean, this goes back to what we were just talking about, about, you know, there's, there's been this idea that Biden will bring potentially have a global democracy summit at some point and that it'll be we're going to have an alliance of democracies um first of all i just think that opens up so many calls of so many potential calls of hypocrisy um but second of well, all india india is a case in point you've you've written about the the right i mean the rise india of or, national authoritarianism how on earth does biden host modi in washington right, as a sign of as like the great democratic alliance yeah. yes but i think it's also true for us one thing the united states needs to get much, much better at is is um, living by the words it says we live by. Practically, the U.S. is going to continue to partner with Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Turkey, but that doesn't mean we need to pretend that things are are not what they are. Yeah, in fact, in fact, Saudi Arabia is a very, very good case in point. Okay, another question: What are your views on vaccine passports? I will take this one. I think first we have to separate vaccine passports used as passports to to enter a country and passports used to go and go to the pub or something. I think with regards to the former definition, I think it's pretty much an inevitability. I think that the the, the circumstances that we talked about at the top of this event in the first question or the first prediction, where you've got new variants emerging that may or may not be, which may or may not render vaccines ineffective, uh, when you've got a, a pandemic continuing to rage around the world, when countries look to the examples of Taiwan or Australia or New Zealand, the countries that are generally perceived as having, um, you know, best managed the crisis um, and see that one of their main reasons for success is that they've managed, they've controlled their borders very, in a very draconian way. I think all of those put together mean that vaccine passports for, for traveling from one country to another are more or less uh, unavoidable. But then actually, I, I understand the controversy about vaccine passports within societies for doing things, that, you know, in your everyday life, but actually vaccines to travel from one place to another are not unheard of. You know, if you've ever tried to go to much of Africa or if you've ever tried to get a visa for the US, um, you know, you do need to get vaccines. Sometimes you have to, sometimes it's just recommended. So I don't know if it's perhaps, I think some of the commentary slightly overblows how much that's a a sea change from what we have before. What do you think, Emily? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think they're going to be required to travel internationally. And in fact, they are now. I think with all of this, it goes back to what we've been talking about throughout, which is that in the same way that the pandemic has exacerbated or, or made rendered more obvious um, inequities between rich countries and poor countries, um, this will too, right? Yeah. So, so not only if you're in a, which is what, what, but that's what passports already are. You know what I mean? Like passports already serve to say, well, if you're American, you can travel to all these places without a visa. And if you're, I don't know, from 
name the country, you it's it's much harder to travel to certain parts of the world. And so this will serve to underscore that. So I, I guess what I'm saying is my problem isn't with vaccine passports, it's with the rift <laughs> between the, <laughs> the global yeah. wealth and global poverty. In, indeed. Okay, with that, I think we're, we're running out of time, unfortunately, for further questions. Thank you to everyone who submitted them. I'm glad we got through at least a good number of them. If you've enjoyed this conversation uh, and are interested in some of the topics we've talked about, we'd strongly recommend you to uh, read and ideally subscribe to The New Statesman. The New Statesman is covering international affairs even more now than it used to. We're putting a real focus on that. So I think all that remains is to say a big thank you to the Cambridge Literary Festival for hosting this event. And to all of you for tuning in. And to everyone everyone watching this, thank you to you, Emily, for joining us from Washington at this so bright and early. Thank you to everyone who dialed into this event and goodbye. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.